Hi, I'm Lewis Pugh, and this is Into the Depths. If the ocean has a guardian, it's definitely Lewis Pugh. The endurance swimmer has braved the most inhospitable waters to draw attention to our most fragile ecosystems. And as the United Nations patron of the oceans, Lewis now leads the fight to protect our seas against climate change. We don't change what we're doing. We're going to destroy our oceans and destroy our planet. As we visit iconic cities all over the world, we meet some pretty cool and inspiring people. From sporting legends to scientific adventurers and genuine trailblazers of equality. We've got it all. So every CLGP event, I get to know one of them a little bit better. And I hope you will too. I'm John O'Turner and you're watching Into the Depths. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you. In Plymouth. Yes. Um, now we could we could probably spend half an hour just talking about your career achievements. So we'll, we'll dig into your amazing and incredible career a little bit. You know, record breaker, endurance athlete, now a diplomat working with the working with the UN to yeah. drive change. But we should also recognise we're here in Plymouth. Yes. We've got the sound behind us with some CLGP boats flying around. You know, you're back in Plymouth, you're actually born here. So yeah. presumably it was natural that you were always going to uh, find a career in and around the oceans. I think so, because I think if you grow up in Plymouth, you're always looking out to the oceans. You know, Plymouth describes itself as Britain's ocean city. And if you think about all the great explorers and uh, adventurers, the vast majority came from here, from Plymouth. And so as a young boy, I used to stand up here on the hoe. In fact, my school was right there on the hoe. And I used to look out to sea and I used to dream. And then you moved, you know, you moved to, uh, to Cape Town. Yes. And, and that's, uh, I guess that only reinforced the, the passion for, for the ocean. You know, an incredible ocean yeah. environment down, down there. Yeah, I mean, there you're deep in the Southern Ocean. I mean, Cape Town is at a juncture between the Atlantic, the Indian and the Southern Ocean. And I was at a school and it, that school also looked out over the, over the ocean. And uh, I always used to think, 5,000 kilometers south of here is Antarctica. And I had dreamt, even since I was a young boy, growing up in here in Plymouth, that one day I would go to Antarctica. And then when we moved down to Cape Town, I was just that little bit closer. I mean, let's get into the, to the swim. Mm. A lot of people watching this will know you from some of your incredible feats of swimming. Mm. And, and that began, I guess, at 17, really, with your first big swim, which was from Robben Island to Cape Town. Yes. And I actually really don't know where it started, but I thought one day I want to swim from Robben Island to Cape Town. I have been swimming now for 35 years. I've swum in some of the most incredible places you can imagine. The North Pole, on Mount Everest in a lake, down in Antarctica, underneath a tunnel. But nothing has quite been so wonderful as that feeling when I first put my feet down on that sand and there were my parents. And then a few years later, you, you swam the English Channel. Yes, yeah, swam the English Channel. So that, were, that would have been 1992. And, and you call that the, the Everest of, uh, of swimming. Why, why is that? It's a swim against which every other swim is compared. You know, I've swum, I've swum across the North Pole, which I can assure you is a very challenging type of place to swim. The water there is minus 1.7. And I can say to people, well, I've swum across the North Pole, and they'll say, have you swum the English Channel? I first did my swim across the English Channel. The water in middle of August was 18 degrees centigrade. Now that was considered really, really hot. I was in the English Channel a few weeks back, so the middle of July, and the water wasn't 18, 
it was 21 degrees, so a month earlier. Three degrees doesn't sound like a lot. It's huge. Wow, in 30 years, that's a huge climb, isn't yeah. it? Well, I mean, that's there in the English Channel. When I did my first swim in the Arctic, when I did my first swim there, water was three degrees. I went back there a few years later. Water's no longer three. Now it's 10 degrees centigrade. So, and, you know, when I tell world leaders, they, they, they're truly shocked. Mm. Wow. And, and that, that experience in the Channel in 1992 essentially formed the cornerstone of this challenge which took over your life for the next almost two decades yeah. which was you in 2007 i believe you became the first person to swim to con con conduct long swims in five in the five oceans essentially right y yes i'm a pioneer swimmer i started comparing myself in some ways to the mountaineers and, and remember there was this challenge to climb the highest mountain on every continent mm -hmm. seven summits and then one day I thought to myself, wow, nobody has done a long distance swim in every ocean of the world. I set aside time to really stop preparing myself to try and do this. And to top it off, you did it all in just a speedo. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, and, and that's for two reasons. Number one, I love the history of the sport. I love what they call channel swimming association rules. So it's just a cap, it's just a goggle and, and, and just uh, speedos, but also... I started becoming an environmentalist. I started talking about what I was seeing in the mm. oceans and urging world leaders to be courageous, to make the tough decisions to protect the environment. If you're asking a world leader to be courageous, you must also be courageous. And so swimming in a speedo felt, you know, it felt like the right thing to do. You, you, you can't swim across the North Pole in a wetsuit or a dry suit and then try to get world leaders to listen to your message. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable reality to face. And actually, you need to be uncomfortable to make the statement as well. Is that, is that kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, correct. And, and there's a vulnerability to it yeah. as well. I think that's why world leaders and media cover these swims. Because when you see somebody taking off their clothes, getting down into a speedo, and then walking across ice and diving into water, which is below zero. So the North Pole, the water is minus 1.7 degrees centigrade. 29 degrees Fahrenheit. It's unbelievably cold. And when you see somebody doing that, your first question is, why? Hmm. And then the answer is very, very simple. I'm swimming in places which have until recently been frozen over. And I'm doing it to highlight what is happening there and to call, to urge us all now to wake up and to realize that if we don't change what we're doing, we're going to destroy our oceans and destroy our planet. And it's an incredible message and an incredible platform. But, but you know, first of all, you have to survive that experience. Yeah. What's the brutal reality of, of swimming yeah. in sub-zero mm. temperatures? How, what do you have to put your body through to prepare yourself for that? These areas where I'm swimming are high-consequence environments. So let's say you're at the, uh, in the Arctic and you swim in seawater, which is zero. I mean, it is unbelievably cold. As soon as you dive in there, I can't breathe. I'm gasping for air. Okay. The difference in zero and minus 1.7, giving a mountaineering analogy, is a difference between climbing Kilimanjaro and climbing K2 in winter. It is that big. Wow. It's exponential. You go down that 1.7 degrees, it is absolutely massive. I'm still, to this date, the only person to have done a long-distance swim in minus 1.7. So the consequence is, okay, you're going to... Very, very difficult to breathe. You're going to gasp. You're going to drown. Mm. 
So what does it take physically in terms of, you know, things like basic things like body fat, you know, diet, yeah. uh, you know, can you possibly ever really prepare for that until you've done it? Is the, the first thing is it, it takes years and years of planning and preparation to do it. And it is the only sport in the whole world that I'm aware of that the more experience you have, the harder it becomes. You know, if you have been really, really, really cold, you never, ever forget it. You remember that deep down in your bones. And so every single subsequent swim, you have to get over what happened in that previous swim. And that's not an easy thing because everything is saying to you, don't go back in there again. Now, I was reading a, a professor, I'm sure a very smart professor's theory on your ability to swim in these cold conditions. Yeah. And they coined a term, let me see if I can get this one right, anticipatory thermogenesis, I guess yes. it's called. Just to break this word down, and this was coined by a professor called uh, Tim Noakes, who is the scientist on uh, the swim which I did across the North Pole and the first swim I did down in Antarctica. He noticed that just before I got into the water, like clockwork, my temperature went from 37 up to about 38, 38.4. Now, it's interesting, humans. You go up just two degrees and you're hyperthermic. You go down just two degrees and you're hypothermic. So we have a very, very narrow band in which, we can, in which we're comfortable. Anyway, he noticed that just before I got into the water, my core body temperature shot up. And it was like clockwork. And anyway, so he said, ah, oh, this is amazing. This is anticipatory thermo heat genesis. You've created it. I think it's fear. Now, I'm just terribly frightened because I know what it's going to be like when I get in that water. <clears throat> and just before I'm getting into the water, my mouth gets incredibly dry. I get really, really focused. I'm not seeing anything that's happening around me. All I'm doing is focusing on the swim and focusing on getting to the end. It's about pure survival. Tim thinks it's a Pavlovian response. So remember the experiments by the Russian scientists where mm. he would ring the bell, feed the dog, and then the dog would salivate. And then he rang the bell and didn't feed the dog and the dog still salivated. And so it was a response to this conditioning of ringing the bell. So he thinks it's a Pavlovian response that whenever I see ice or I get cold, I'm about to get cold, I know deep down in my subconscious and it raises my core body temperature. Whatever it is, we don't know how many other people have got it because how many people are swimming exactly. in water below zero. So now I swallow a little temperature capsule beforehand. Two hours before the swim, I swallow this temperature capsule. There's a little logger. And we notice just as I'm about to get in the water, it starts going up from 37. And it, it's, it's fascinating to watch it. And then I know I'm ready. Anyway, when I get out of the water at the end, then about two minutes afterwards, we noticed my core body temperature starting to drop, 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 drop. And it was taking me two and a half hours to warm back up to normal core body mm. temperature. That's how cold you get. So 2007 was the North Pole yeah. swim. I think at the time it was the lowest amount of Arctic sea ice yeah. ever recorded. So yeah. that's a moment, I guess, you know, it seems like you've always been an environmentalist at heart, but that is that a moment where kind of, Something changed. Yes. I came out with a renewed realization that what we had witnessed there at the North Pole, this massive open patches of sea all over the Arctic, um, that this was a defining moment in the history of the planet. And I had a deep responsibility now to share this message. 
And how, I mean, I guess it's also a real, it gave you a real sense of urgency on that issue as well. But, mm. you know, we're, in reality, we're yeah. already mm. almost too, I don't want to be uh, pessimistic about the situation, yeah. but in some ways we're already too too late, right? Well, we're passing certain tipping points and we're passing them really, really quickly. I mean, let me take you to another part of the world. So I do a lot of swimming in coral reefs now. And we, so we're seeing the really big changes in, in both the polar regions and the coral reefs. I like to say that these are the two sort of ground zeros of the climate crisis. You can see it happening. There's no disputing. So with the melting of the ice in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, and in the Himalayas, that you see. In the coral reefs, well, the water temperature there, if it rises just a little bit, it kills the coral. And the science is really, really uh, frightening. So the science says if we heat our planet by 1.5 degrees centigrade, we will lose 70% of the world's coral reefs. If we heat the planet by 2 degrees centigrade, we lose 99%. And we're on track way past 2 degrees now. And that's not something that I can accept, that we would lose all the coral reefs of the world. I mean, the coral reefs are the nurseries of the world. This is where we have nearly a quarter of life in our oceans lives in coral reefs. You know, for those of your, your viewers who've been and swum over a coral reef or dived on a coral reef and you see the beautiful sharks and the manta rays and the, and the colors and the turtles and the small tropical fish of every color, imagine losing all of that. It's really stark. But that's what we're on track for unless we make significant changes. Wow. And you're the UN patron for the oceans. Yes. Uh, you know, how, how has your approach changed since you were given that platform? You know, yeah. it's a huge, huge role and responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. So the, the executive director of the United Nations Environment Program said to me, he said, Lewis, you've got one role. Please be a voice for the oceans and be a voice for all the magnificent wildlife in our oceans. Uh, and that's an absolute privilege because our oceans are so magnificent. Uh, but the role seems to have increased, and you know, it's moved from being a voice for the oceans to being a voice you know, for ocean protection now. And also, you know, my responsibility is to shine a light you know, on the scene of the crime, on the places where we are destroying our planet. Uh, and I've done that now for eight years. It's been an utter privilege. I've, uh, I've been the first UN Environment uh, patron of the oceans. I hope to do it for a few more years, but then hand it, hand it on. I always say that everybody who uses our oceans, if you're a sailor, a swimmer, a surfer, a, you know, a kayaker, we should all be voices for our oceans. In that almost 10 years that you've been performing mm. that role, you know, are you more optimistic, less optimistic? You know, is, is there any, what's the biggest learning you've taken from that time, you know? People ask me whether I have hope, Yeah. And I always say that hope is a dangerous word because hope can lead to an abdication of responsibility that you hope that some other government is going to cut its carbon emissions, that some other company is going to stop polluting our environment, that somebody's going to come up with a technical solution. We have to earn our hope. We have to go out every single day and do everything that we can now to protect our oceans. Uh, to be honest, the stuff which is happening is happening too slowly. I'm 52. In my lifetime, we've lost nearly 70% of the world's wildlife. And every single year, I see these, these glaciers moving further and further back. 
as I was saying, last year, last year I was in Greenland. I went to the Alulasat Glacier. That's moving at a speed of 40 meters per day. You know, when you see something moving at 40 meters per day, it's astonishing. You know, it's almost as if, to put it frankly, sometimes our glaciers are moving quicker than world leaders. We need to move up really, really quickly. And we need to treat it like a, like a crisis because it is a crisis. When I first started, people were talking about climate change. And then it became the climate emergency. You know, it's an environmental catastrophe. If you start losing 70% of the world's wildlife in just 50 years, that's a catastrophe and needs all hands on deck to fix it. When you don't see that urgency mm. from people, you must get quite, you know, emotional, angry, frustrated. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a diplomat. I, <laughs> I, I have to keep on the pressure. I have to be passionate. You know, you can't be despondent all the time. Mm. You've got to seek wins. You've got to see where you can find consensus among nations to protect the planet, and then you've got to drive those really, really hard. And, you know, I'm, you know, you're competing against a very, very busy news cycle. And there's so many important things happening in the world. If you start thinking around the world right now, we're coming out of COVID, there's been the invasion of Ukraine, there's an energy crisis, there's so many different things. If you're a world leader, you're dealing with so many different things. I want to make sure that the, you know, that what's happening to our oceans and what's happening to the environment is right at the top of the agenda. We rely on our environment for our very health, for our well-being, for our survival. Why wouldn't it be the top thing that we're thinking about every single day? And it's not something that you can just deal with occasionally. You know, the numbers will then run against you. We need to deal with it every single day. And with the Lewis Pugh Foundation, mm -hmm. you've set an ambitious goal for 2030. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that and why that's important. Well, so this, this was setting a goal for how much of the oceans should be protected. Um, and at the United Nations, uh, we're now trying to get all the countries to agree to protecting at least 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. We started this campaign uh, four years ago. Since then, about 120 nations have joined. Uh, and that's really, really exciting. But there, there's so well over half of the nations of the world have committed to this goal. But there's a big distinction between setting an ambition, setting a target, and actually delivering on it. So we need to get those marine protected areas across the line, and then they need to be protected. No good just having a marine protected area without it being properly protected. And when you start seeing the, the effects of protecting large areas of oceans and how the wildlife rebounds, it's absolutely amazing. And I compare this to what happens terrestrially. Like you imagine a world without the Serengeti National Park, without Yellowstone, without Kruger National Park. The world would be a very, very different place. Mm -hmm. That's what we face now in our oceans, that we now, it's a race against time to set aside the most magnificent parts of our oceans and to protect them for future generations. And of course, Plymouth Sound is the UK's first... It's exciting. First national marine park. Yes. Because, I mean, if you, if you look at the sound and you start thinking about all the people and all the organizations that are using it, over there, there's a big commercial harbor and a fishing harbor. Over there, there's a Royal Navy uh, harbor. In the middle, you've got loads of scientists coming here and doing research in this beautiful, beautiful sound. And then there are swimmers, there are kayakers, there are sailors, lots and lots of people in this area using it. And this is a forum now 
for us to have the discussions about how we look after this place, which is so precious. And it was, you know, created uh, two, three years ago now. And, you know, every year it's getting better and better and better. And what does it mean for the UK to have this National Marine Park? Well, what we hope is that we hope that we're able to work out a blueprint for how to protect an area. Because this is not unique. I mean, you start thinking about, you know, Southampton and other great big cities around the, around the country, and they will also have competing users. They'll have navies, they'll have commercial harbors, they'll have fishermen, they'll have ordinary members of the public who like to sail, they'll have swimmers. How do you ensure that all of them can work together to properly protect an area? Yeah. So it's about collaboration, essentially, and communication. Yes, it's about collaboration and communication, but it's also, we must never, ever forget Protecting the environment now is the defining issue of our generation. Yeah? Every generation has an opportunity to change the world, to make it better, to make it safer, to make it more sustainable. We have to ensure that these marine protected areas protect the sustainability of these waters. Just briefly on the on the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a really um, interesting and valuable framework because it's a common language that we can use to yeah. speak between you know businesses governments yeah. uh, different entities is it is it fair to say that you think you know businesses around the world and if they're not actually close to the sea or they or they don't work in the marine sector do you think they underestimate the impact that they that they have i think we all underestimate the impact we're having on the oceans you know we all rely on the oceans not just for the air which we breathe but it impacts the climate but also uh, you know, the oceans provide so much food for people around the world. So oceans are, are absolutely essential. Our oceans are 70% of the world. Think about that. The vast majority of our, of our planet are oceans. And we do forget the impact which we have on our oceans. We've got CLGP in the sound uh, this weekend, uh, second time in Plymouth. Um, I mean, it's going to be a fantastic event. You're going to be going out on a, on, a, on one of the F50s yourself and experiencing yeah. that. Have you been out on this kind of boat before? No, never. I'm really excited. Do you think you'll be more comfortable on, on board or in the water? Well, what I do know is that if I fall overboard, I'll be okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I see how fast they go. And, you know, occasionally you see people fall overboard or, you, you know, sometimes they crash. Certainly I'll feel, I'll feel okay if, if I get thrown overboard. Yeah, and CLGPs are relatively, you know, in the gra- in the grander scheme of things, it's a relatively new kind of sports league. You know, it's 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 less than five years old essentially since it began. Mm. Um, but they're making uh, they're making waves in uh, in in sport and in sustainability. They're really leading the charge in terms yeah. of how to deliver and transition. Uh, you know, global events particularly, which historically, yeah. uh, you know, create a, a decent amount of negative impact. They're really working hard to transition into a, into a more positive impact. So what's your view on, on something like CLGP and the power that sport can have to, to, to spread a message? This is singly the most exciting part of CLGP. Yep. I mean, watching nine teams racing against each other across Plymouth Sound is really exciting. But the fact that they're starting to talk about sustainability for me is really exceptional. And I always think that if you use the ocean, you have a special responsibility to always protect it. Now... How amazing it is that a sport like sailing, which has such a huge global audience, is now speaking about the environment and about protecting the oceans. And imagine if we have a circumstance where you have swimmers, surfers, sailors, windsurfers, kayakers, rowers, 
divers, everybody who uses the ocean speaking up as one voice, then you have impact. And speaking of impact, you know, it's a, it's a year actually since LGP launched the Impact League, which is a quite a groundbreaking part of LGP. Mm. It's a it's a it's a championship that runs on shore. So essentially, all the teams are scored on their positive impact. Yeah. And I think what's nice about that, you know, as the Danish team, we're, we're involved in that with our partners, Rockwell and, and One Ocean Foundation. We're actually leading that uh, right now. But I think that Great. what's nice about it is it focuses on the small things, you know, the waste management, the the, yeah. the fuel use in the chase boats on the water. It really leaves no stone unturned. And, and I think what, it's, what it shows is that this transition is not always glamorous and it's not always mm. easy. It's the small things that actually everyone can, can make small changes, right? So yeah. I'm sure you get people come up to you all the time and say, you know, Lewis, you, you know, you've convinced me, uh, I want to make a change, what yeah. can I do? And, yeah. and it's, it's hard as an individual sometimes to feel that you can do almost anything yes. uh, in a sense because it's such a grand, big problem. So mm. what's your response to people who want to help and really want to go and make a change to mm. protect the ocean? First of all, thank you. Yeah, because there are some people who are indifferent to damaging the environment. And that seems such an odd response, you know. Why would we want to leave an environment to our children which is unsustainable? But, but the second point I say to them is that every single purchase which we make on a daily basis is a decision about our future, whether that's the clothes we wear, the food we eat, how we get to school, you know, how we take our children to school, how we get to work, uh, how we heat our homes, how we cool our homes, every single one of those is a decision about our future. And I'm asking people to be really conscious about the decisions they make on a daily basis. And, you know, when they're purchasing something, please look for the most sustainable option. And if you don't know what it is, we need to educate ourselves. We need to become environmentally literate. You know, all of us need to become environmentally literate. And you start thinking about the impact which that has across you know, all the people who watch sailing, that starts having a big impact. Now, in SailGP, uh, the boats race in the grand final for $1 million. So we always like to ask a $1 million question. What's the big goal? You know, what do you want to achieve while you still can you still can go out there and, and, and swim and achieve, and achieve these things physically? So I've got some swimming goals and I've got, obviously, lots of environmental goals. You know, when I arrive in Antarctica and... I see those huge icebergs and the ice shelves and the penguins and the magnificent whales and all these animals. I'm, I'm, I'm really at home. This city here, Plymouth, was the home of Captain Scott. Many great polar explorers came from Plymouth. I want to see that area properly protected. Uh, I was involved in securing the protection of an area called the Ross Sea, which is uh, an incredible place. So if you sail from the bottom of... Um, uh, New Zealand all the way down to Antarctica that's that area there's a Ross Sea we're able to create a very very big marine protected area there it's the size of Britain France Germany Italy all put together wow. it's huge it's the biggest in the world I want more though I want many more of those type of areas around Antarctica uh, and then from a swimming point of view I always try to do swims in places where I can carry a message and I've got this long long list of places where I still want to swim uh, one of my big swims will be happening at the end of the year. Uh, I alluded to it subtly in this interview, but I hope before the big climate change conference, I would do a really, really big swim there to highlight what's happening to that part of the world. Well, thank you, Lewis. It's been fascinating to chat and very inspiring. So thanks for your time while you're here in Plymouth. <laughs>
Thank you so much.